Hello, and welcome to another edition of Traffic Cakes for Proust. Joining myself, Gary, is Tilt. Hello. Now, a lot of talk in recent weeks, Tilt, about Back to the Future Day, and people going back in time and all that kind of shizzle, as the young ones say. Now, we're not going back to 1985 as such, we're going a little further back, aren't we? 1972. Good year. There's a reason for all this. For a while it just sat there on the list of things we will get to eventually. But somewhere on that list was a film called Our Miss Fred, Danny LaRue film, which is odd and contradictory and runs off in five different directions at once, and we'll get to that. But it wasn't particularly high on the list. And then Gary came across something on a TV channel called Talking Pictures, didn't you? Yes, and it's worth mentioning, Talking Pictures is a really, really good channel. It's on satellite if you're a Sky customer, it's on free for free. But also, if you're in an area where you can get BBC4 in HD on Freeview, you can also get Talking Pictures on your Freeview telly. It's channel 81. Because we've often talked before about how your version of TCM in the States is like TCM supposed to be. And TCM here is showing things like, you know, Harrison Ford and the Fugitive and New Adams Family and stuff like that. Whereas Talking Pictures is TCM as it should be, because they're actually showing old <laughs> films. They're showing films with Leslie Dwyer and Stanley Holloway. Now, one thing we've got to point out about Talking Pictures before we get to the, the meat and drink is that they have recently been airing some bits and pieces from the Southern Archive. And in addition to, say, Flockton Flyer and bits and pieces like that, we had Lord Tramp with... Hugh Lloyd, the children's sitcom, and recently we had one of the greatest sitcoms ever made, Take a Letter, Mr. Jones. So keep an eye out for that if you haven't seen it already. I'm sure that at some point they will show that Beryl Marston. I have tweeted them and asked them if they'll show Undermanning, and they favorited the tweet, which as far as I'm concerned is a legally binding contract. So look out for that. So what happened was you found this short film, you passed it along to me, and I thought, ah, I'm beginning to see a pattern. So it was like, well, we can't really do a cast dedicated to this fascinating little short, but it locks in with this feature film we were going to talk about eventually. All we need to do is find one more, and we've got a pattern, and we've got a series, and we found one more film, and then suddenly it's like, hang on a minute, these are all 1972. Some things do list A Couple of Beauties as 1971, but I think it was released in 1972. It's close enough, so... 1972 is the year of men dressed as ladies. Now, of course, this is the 2010s, and there's a slightly contentious issue here. While we were working on this, a few things happened. One of the most conscientious people I know got accused of transphobia, and I can't remember the situation, but somebody sent me a link to a Tumblr called Bad Trans Jokes, and this was talking about how, oh, look, a man's dressed as a woman, ha, 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 can be seen as a very nasty-minded thing. I think the context is different from the films we're going to be talking about today because the jokes this person was talking about, I think there was an amount of this person's happy. This person's social mores have defined a man is happy dressing in women's clothing, ha, ha, ha. These films are not really about that. These films are about disguises, circumstances making you pretend to be something you're not and you doing a bad job or too good a job but being aware at all times this is not actually who you are the divide between am i getting away with it and i don't really want to get away with it so i wanted to get that dealt with right now because you know i have friends who could be very easily upset 
if it just looked like uh, we were pointing at anybody who wears a dress and going, ha ha, these are films about disguises. They are. And also, you've got to consider the period of time and the intent. I think the intent is the most important thing of all. Oh, I don't know about that. A bit like last time, and we were talking about when I was talking about the chairman Malpots, and I occasionally bring up this thing of Southeast Asians. On the one hand, I'm not giving people a free pass because they're nice. Well, yes, they made this joke, but they're jolly nice people. And on the other hand, I can't say no offence meant is no offence done, but also I don't gain anything by accusing people of bigotry who I'm pretty sure are not bigoted. There's lots of in-betweeny stuff to talk about. I think sometimes it's like, well, you didn't intend any harm. Harm might have been done, but you act on this new information. There's too much on the internet of, it's just a joke, get over it. Or, you are a bigoted monster, how dare you? Just the black and whiting, on-off binary madness. When I say the importance of intent, I don't consider it's just a joke, get over it as a legitimate defence. Because I think that that is sometimes cited by people who actually do have perhaps a little bit of intent or perhaps are using the phony excuse or oh, it's ironic. Therefore, it's perfectly okay, whatever I say in the next 90 minutes. But in these three instances, I don't think that there is any intention to upset. And as far as people becoming upset by certain things, even if there's no intention, I suspect that if you really tried hard enough, then you could take offence at really anything at all. And of course, there's different degrees of that, there's different levels of that. But if you're determined, you can read something into anything at all. When we get on to Bunny Lewis... We'll talk a bit about the Bunny Lewis film. I actually think there's an element of self-expression there. Mm, yes. Yeah. There was a certain freedom to say and do things in his act. His was really the only one where we saw somebody's act. Do we want to talk about bunnies first, or do we want to talk about, ooh, you are awful? Ooh, it is awful. No, it isn't. It's a classic. It's a forgotten classic. Well, it's forgotten anyway. No, This I is going to be a rare, it's... serious disagreement. We might disagree on small points, but... This film was bad. Actually, no, this film was well made, well acted. There was one fatal flaw. The central character is a monster. The central character is a lovely bloke who is just trying to... Steal money from innocent make people. His, make his way in the world by selling other people's dogs, for example. And he gets caught up in a little bit of funny business with the mafia. So we should explain. His name's... What's his name? Charlie Tunnock or something, isn't it? Or Fuddock Charlie or... Tully. Right. A few weeks ago, I finally put right what was wrong about me and I watched The Sting. There's a lot of really famous films that I've never seen. There was a time in my life when people seemed to think I was a film expert and I'd have to tell them that every single famous film they kept throwing at me I'd not seen. I said, that I've seen lots of different types of film, but I haven't seen every film in Empire's Top 100 to see before you die. But anyway, I finally got around to seeing The Sting. So you've seen The Sting, and the thing is, in The Sting, right at the beginning, it shows our lead characters pulling a con. And the person they pull the con on, it works partially because this person is dishonest. And there is supposed to be an old grifter saying, never fool an honest man. And I think that's important in con films and heist films. The crime either has to be shown to be essentially victimless, like being pulled against a huge corporation, 
or being pulled against somebody who is fundamentally dishonest. The reason they can't go to the police is because of their own dishonesty. And it helps keep the person on side. Either that or you just kind of blur out his victims. Now thinking of Porridge, the other day you said, how would Porridge work with Dick Emery as Fletch? It'd be different. I don't think it'd be colossally different. But it's important that Clement and Lafreniere don't really ever show you any of the people who've been burgled by Fletch. Also, Fletch undergoes a change. He has a character arc. By the end, he realises this is nowhere to live. Whereas Charlie Tully, like you said, we see him selling somebody's dog. He's sitting in the airport. There's a dog there. Somebody goes, oh, what a cute dog. And he sells it to this couple. They haven't done anything wrong. The dog's owner hasn't done anything wrong. He just wants money from anybody. He's not a Robin Hood. He wants money for himself. He doesn't care about the victims. Plot's moved by him conning thousands and thousands of pounds, or is it maybe even half a million, out of somebody who turns out to be connected with the mafia, but we don't know that when he's doing it. And everybody's played likeable. So that was it. I had no sympathy. I didn't really care what happened to him. But that's the point, is that by comparison... By comparison with the Mafia, then he's just a small-time crook, so we're supposed to be on his side. Yeah, but we don't know the Mafia connection until after we've seen him pull the con. So it's locking the stable door after the horse has bolted. I've already seen this is a guy who just takes money from people. And it's not like it's played with grey and grey morality. I think we're supposed to like Charlie. So I wanted Darren Nesbitt to get him and pull his head off. Yeah, but that's the thing, you see, because... Darren Nesbitt's gang and the Mafia are murderers. Charlie Tully isn't a murderer, so that's why we're on his side. It's yeah, all but the people wealth. they're out to murder are already criminals. Charlie Tully's victims are just people, just people going about their business. Yeah, well, all people have money. So? He's not like shown as a Robin Hood. He's not balancing things. They need to show where his limits are, and we're not shown his limits. That We're not shown the things he will not do for a big score. We're not shown any kind heart. We're just shown that Charlie Tully likes conning people. What about the, the prison warder? Yeah, but prison warder shouldn't be doing favours for cons. He's a parasite, and this is not like budgie. This is not meant to be a thing of bad people feeding off other bad people. This is Charlie Tully will do whatever it takes in terms of doing a con. Okay, he won't threaten people, he won't kill people, but... We get no limits of the character, so it's like, right, if we're to assume that this line of behaviour continues to infinity, yet yeah, he probably has set up a bogus charity and run off with the money. There's nothing to show that he wouldn't but the, do but, yeah, that. But, okay, but the thing is that his victims are either well-heeled or they're gormless. At no point does... Oh, so picking on the stupid is okay. Well, you know, you've got to keep your wits about you, haven't you? So how much Ayn Rand do you read? <laughs> <laughs> Charlie Tully is some kind of Nietzschean ubermensch, <laughs> and thanks to his superior guile, it's fair dues. Charlie Tully is clever. His victims are stupid. Ha! They deserve all they get. Well, what, what does it say about Phil and his money are quickly parted? And that, well, that's that's you know, it's the case today, and it was the case back then. And it's that's a the warning. Case. That's not advice. Well, no, but that, that's the point, isn't it? He's not pickpocket, so he doesn't just go around the streets, you know, snatching people's wallets or anything like that, and. Like I said, there's no suggestion that he engages in any kind of heavy stuff or anything like that. Right. Dressing up as a woman, though, that's, well, that's no, also that's the that. thing well, no, to that, talk it, about, it's, actually. Because now we've just kind of completely derailed it. You're not going to convince me. So let's talk about Dick Emery's women. 
the first time we see him, he's pretending to be Mandy. What is Mandy's thing? She sees innuendo everywhere, but she rather likes it. She thinks everybody's flirting with her. You know, recently there was that. It was all right in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. It's all right when me and my mates commission something. <laughs> denigrates people who are different, but ho oh, oh, ho, no, simple working class people doing it. That's bang out of order. Come in one of those moods today. <laughs> Probably could argue a kind of sexism wouldn't take much to find a bunch of clips to condemn Dick Emery of base sexism. There's a lot of real warm heartedness in Dick Emery's characters. Mandy's one of them. There's Hetty, the frustrated spinster character. I suppose she could appear a bit more dodgy. Also, you could argue that some characteristics have been nicked from a Ruth Buzzy character whose name escapes me. But if you wanted to be charitable, you could argue that it's a balancing act between Hetty and Mandy. Innuendo flusters Hetty, but Mandy quite enjoys it, finds it funny. And again, there's a sense that Dick Emery likes his people. There's not really any malice. I don't think there's any malice in Dick Emery's characters. No, but it's interesting that there's no malice. It's interesting how much care he seems to have. We seem to do the vicar. I don't think he ever does Clarence in this film. Clarence is his gay character. And there were protests about Clarence, and you've told the story before about him getting cornered in Australia. Well, no, that, that was an interesting thing because he wasn't. John oh, right. was cornered in Australia. And when he said to the testers, he said, look, in comparison with Mr. Humphreys, Clarence's is much worse. Why aren't you protesting Dick Emery? And the response was, because you're here and Dick Emery's not. Well, this is a thing where we're talking about stuff we don't really know, because neither of us are gay. Sorry, ladies. We're your problem. <laughs> but as far as I can tell, characters like Clarence and Mr. Humphreys, there's a bit of a divide about how gay men see them. Oh, yeah, did I also mention we're going to probably just do sexuality binaries? We're not going to talk about bisexuality, but we're not engaging in bi-erasure except for that freaking bit in Odd Man Out. Don't try and argue that Neville is meant to be bisexual. <laughs> no, they wrote him as gay, and then when the joke required it, they wrote him as straight. Just flipped, flipped. Six on the Kinsey scale, zero on the Kinsey scale. Flip, flip, flip. But Clarence is interesting. He's completely at ease with himself, and he's not pretending. He's not closeted. He's not particularly guarded. He's from... It's a bit Julian and Sandy, really. Okay, here's a controversial... It's not really a controversial point, but it's a point. Is Clarence a fundamentally more honest character than Mr. Humphreys? Because you yes. always hear the defence of Mr. Humphreys, so to speak. Croft and Lloyd have said in the past, oh, we wrote him as a sort of mummy's boy. He's not really supposed to be gay or straight or anything else. Yeah, his jokes wouldn't make sense if he was just asexual. And yet, John Inman seemed to take the view that Clarence was more offensive well, John Inman was gay and Dick Emery wasn't, so maybe he'd know. Yes, this is true. It's odd, isn't it? Because you'd think also in 1972, I mean, I know you said that Clarence isn't in the film, but he was certainly in the Dick Emery shows of that era. And you're talking about a wholly liberated gay character five years after the decriminalisation in England and Wales. I can't explain it, but I would have thought that perhaps some people might have viewed Clarence as a step in the right direction, rather than somebody who was seeking to... Okay, well, I'll say it because I was going to say it anyway later on. Danny LaRue, who kept on saying for years and years that he wasn't gay and, and seemed to go to sort of extreme lengths to convince the audience that that was the case. This is going to get more focused when we get on to the next two films we're thrashing about here. So, right, a few patterns to notice then. 
So there seems to be something that runs through these films. One, being allowed in the dorm or somewhere like that. A place that's not meant to have men in it. Which generally leads to, whoa, look at all these birds. That was in character. And the second <laughs> How you say that now? element is some bloke takes a shine to our dressed up hero. And that's played for laughs. I'm not trying to imply any weird, great sexual neuroses. I guess one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this is it doesn't seem to be a thing you get quite as much in American comedy because we've got Tootsie, which is done a bit different, though, and done for different reasons. Just sometimes I have to explain pantomime dames and why they exist. And there's two different ways of doing the pantomime dame. The glib explanation I give for pantomime dames is the joke really is, what if your mum started acting like your dad? Pantomime dames I always found funniest were the ones who were not really even trying to be feminine. They were just capering around that thing, Bill Oddie playing a pantomime dame and not shaving off his beard. You do get pantomime dames who are more in the female impersonator mold, but I never find those quite as effective. So it's a thing that runs through British comedy, and it was just interesting to see what happens when they turn that into a plot point. So you basically, you've got a male fantasy, which is being allowed in a girl's dorm or a girl's dressing room, a place where girls are going to be undressing, and two, a weird fear, which is some bloke hitting on you. Is this a uniquely British thing, do you think? I'm going to throw this out and hopefully it lands somewhere in the spectrum. I'm not sure if it will or not. But there's a Benny Hill sketch, a visual sketch about a nudist colony. And there's, you know, Benny Hill and Jackie Wright and what have you, and the women are there, and obviously it's all covered up with fences and what have you, but you get the implication. And then a woman passes by who's not in the nudist colony and starts adjusting her stocking. And suddenly the men are all, because they've seen a tiny little glimpse that they're not supposed to. Now, this all sort of fits in with this idea of the British being sexually repressed, and that's why we've got double entendre, and yeah, I know it's a French expression, but what the hell. And it fits in with carry-on films and certainly some of the elements that you get, perhaps some of the lines in a pantomime that would go over the kids' heads, for example, for the benefit of the parents and the, the audience. And You can't define national characteristics in terms of just virtue and vice. Virtues and vices seem to be bound together. Discretion becomes repression. Openness becomes vulgarity. So yes, I think you could be more explicit in places and the British just wouldn't find it funny. just wouldn't work. It wouldn't necessarily even offend or shock their sensibilities. It would just be... It would be like watching a ventriloquist whose lips move. Peter Broth. Oh! Oh! <laughs> I'm not sure there's a great deal more to be said about who you are awful. Right, sorry, the plot. So the plot is he has to find a bank account number and the numbers have been tattooed to a number of women's behinds. So he has to take photographs of bear bombs. Who is the villain in this piece? I don't mean as in Charlie Tully. I mean, okay, you can think to yourself, oh, there's Dick Emery's character looking at a load of ladies' rears. But his character has a legitimate reason for doing that, according to the script, which, without forgetting about that, it's in the script. You know, somebody wrote that. So therefore, you know, he's not completely off the hook. But why did they write it like that? Because the British public want to see rears on their screen. A little veil of plausible deniability. It's about the plot. Okay, let's be frank. If this was a French film, for example, or a German film, 
Would it have been the rears that the tattoos were on, or would it have been someone else? I don't know. I'm not French or German. I don't know what their thing is. So there's a scene where he's in a girl's dorm. It's a police academy, so it's not like they're schoolgirls. And this is why this is sort of either side of the divide. This is in some ways the most lecherous, but not the most lecherous. We'll come to that later. Oh, there was a bit I thought I knew was going to happen and didn't. He figures, right, one of these girls has the tattoo. So he turns up the heating and they all turn over and he sneaks around and for some reason none of them wake up and he's pulling up their 90s and taking a good look. So just the way you phrased that there, it sounds somewhat seedy. It is somewhat seedy. I thought it was going to turn out to be the woman in charge of the police academy. I thought that would be the punchline, but apparently not. Apparently, middle-aged women don't have things. They don't have sexuality or agency. They're just to be laughed at. What was my point? Well, the point was you were drawing a comparison between that and Armas Fred. Right, well, I'll, I'll draw the Armas Fred comparison later. Anyway, I found that a little bit interesting for the kind of film it was. Because it's nowhere near to the state. What year did the Confessions film start? 74. Only a couple of years away. But even in tone, it's nowhere near that far. So I found that kind of strange. Yeah, it was seedy. It felt weirdly seedy. On the cost is the bit where he cuts the back off a bride's dress. I mean, that's a sex crime. It's just creepy. And he ends up working for the mafia. We're just showing him now conning people on behalf of a much bigger operation. And we have established he can't help himself. He likes running a con. Okay, but... In his defence, no, he's got I a wish Darren Nesbitt had nailed him to a wall. Well, Darren Nesbitt's drag act of his own on the train—I mean, it wasn't exactly convincing, was it? Because you know, Mandy managed to get away with sneaking into the police academy and what have you. Whereas Darren Nesbitt, he wouldn't get past the front gate. Even in 1972, women tended not to have sideburns. Can I talk about Mad Men again? There's a bit in Mad Men where they sort of jumped forward to. 1968, 1969, between series. And so we're seeing all the characters, we're seeing all the male characters wandering around, and a lot of them are grown sideburns. Because, like, okay, fashion's moving forward, sideburns, they're becoming the thing. And I just so wanted Christina Hendricks as John, when her character came on, to have the most extravagant mutton chops of the lot of them. That would have been fantastic. These massive red sideburns. Okay, it wouldn't have been very realistic. Might not be very funny, actually. Forget I said anything. So that takes us to the easier to talk about A Couple of Beauties. This is all my fault because this film was on Talking Pictures and I knew a few people, including Till, would be interested to see it. So I grabbed a copy of it and that meant that I ended up seeing it twice as part of the process. And it is only 25 minutes, isn't it? I mean, it definitely is only 25 minutes. It's not three hours, is it? I quite like how it somehow lays bare the fraud that is cinema. Here is a plot some other people would have probably got 90 minutes, maybe two hours out of. Look, we all know that there's really only 25 minutes of idea in this plot, if that. Let's just go at it. I mean, hello, B-movie piercing. It's beyond that. This makes children's film foundation flicks look like they've got some padding in them. Okay, the best way I can describe this from my point of view is, you know that weekend, because we've just had it going in the opposite direction. You know that weekend in the spring where you put the clocks forward? If you were to watch a couple of beauties, say five minutes to two, you wouldn't actually realise that you put the clocks forward. It would have felt like the natural progression of 
time. That's why I'm checking that it definitely only was 24 minutes, wasn't it? I don't understand how you reacted so badly to this. You got Tim Barrett and a bunch of Manchester nightclubs of a type you don't get anymore. It's just a nice little bit of cultural atmosphere. It is. And the rest of it is just a side issue. You're just not interested in culture. (laughs) No, I'm not accepting a couple of beauties featuring appearances from Colin Crompton and Bernard Manning. I'm not accepting that this is something that should have gone out in Sky Arts. No, not having that. Sky Arts should get him off a history of striptease with Hugh Scully and somebody else talking filth. Really, quite surprisingly explicit strip scenes. Yep, but it's filth disguised as art. That's the important bit. There's no way that you can disguise a couple of beauties as art. No, but this is cultural history, not disguised as anything at all. This is, let's get a camera, go around a few Manchester nightclubs, put a little veneer of plotter over it, and there you go, 25 minutes of interest. You're joyless. (laughs) I lied to you, you are awful. Didn't you like Bunny Lewis? Yes, actually, yes, I did. Yes, I did. Engaging. He was was silly. Yeah, I like Bunny Lewis, yes. And I think, to be honest, I think Bunny Lewis deserved a better film than this. He deserved a proper film of a proper plot. But, okay, here is the plot of A Couple of Beauties for anyone who might not have seen it, i.e. everyone. So you've got Bunny Lewis, and he sees some gangster up to no good or whatever. So he has to do a runner. So he comes up to Manchester, and that's about it. You know what we could have done instead? We could have done Nuns on the Run. I'm glad we did this instead. No, I agree. I agree. I wouldn't have been interested in Nuns on the Run because that's, you know, it's 1990s. It's just meh. It doesn't look any different as far as I'm concerned to 2015. So there's no interest there. I'm being overly harsh, but... What's the problem with it not really looking different? You like things looking different, huh? You like that divide. (laughs) A couple of beauties is like a different planet. It's wonderful. You know what, if I had a time machine, I'd probably hang around in some nightclubs in the Northwest for a little bit, and then I'd go and fix terrible things. But just to relax myself, I would go to the Mersey Hotel and watch some suggestive humour and drink uh, screwdrivers and have chicken key, whatever they did in the 70s. Let's just check this. So you've got, let's say you've got the topical DeLorean. Now you could have tapped in, you're going to have to help me out with the year because I'm not not really up in history. It's not really my thing, unless it happened in a carry-on film. But you could type in whatever the year the Romans happened in, and you could put a stop to Nero and his larks, and instead you choose to go back to the Wheel Tappers and Chanter Social Club. No, not instead. Not instead. Either to sufficiently relax myself to prepare for such an adventure, or afterwards, as a reward, I would eventually get round to fixing all the bad things in history. But at some point, you just stop off at some place with a plastic sign that's trying to look classy but not quite. Some place that's been semi-modernised and is an odd little clash of eras and hang out there for a bit and might go and see Bunny Lewis's live act. Bunny Lewis had a rule, never say anything on stage that would upset your Auntie Betty. I think that's fair enough, yes. Okay, right, quick deviation. On the subject of time travel, if you had it, could you resist the urge? Because I know that we've talked about, you know, the whole time-space continuum. We talked about all that and the Romans and what have you. Could you really resist the urge to just go back to caveman times, as I think that they were referred yes, to? Yes, definitely. Right? No, hang on. Could you resist the urge to go back to caveman times and just land there, and then you see some caveman, and you go, oi, caveman, look at this. And you show him, like, 
an iPhone and it's got like YouTube videos of sneezing panda on it or something like that. And you go, hey, look at this. And then you just vanish again. Yeah, you've probably tanked the whole of human history down the toilet by doing that. But could you possibly resist the urge? Yes. Well, how? Because there's like 60s and 70s music halls that are an odd combination of the almost modern Andy Edwardian. I could go to that music hall that Barry Cryer was the chairman of and sing Oh the Fairies. Yes. I'd rather do that than hang out in a cave. I like the music hall chairman in A Couple of Beauties. <laughs> he's a, it looks like he's forgotten his costume and has put something together from what was in the storage room. So you have James Beck attempting a northern accent. So the plot is, yeah, Bunny witnesses a murder. The criminals realise he's witnessed the murder. He dashes from London up to Manchester. He has to hide out, and his agent, played by Tim Barrett, says, you could do a drag act. We see a couple of routines of good, honest northern vulgarity. He also, for some reason, has to join a girl group. I don't really understand that bit. Tim Barrett says, they're a woman short. And it's like, it just seems to be playing rhythm guitar. I can't imagine that the management at whatever establishment they're playing says, hang on a minute, I ordered a six-piece. This is a five-piece. You're not getting paid. I've seen the Sweeney. All hell can break loose on less. And he has to stay the night at a guest house run by Pat Coombs and James Beck. James Beck is a drunken lecher in this. And he takes a shine to Bunny. Bunny is still pretending to be a woman. And Bunny has to crash with the girls. So that's where we get our little bit of war, as we shall call it. Now, hang on, I'm a bit confused. Actually, legitimately, I'm, I am confused about this. Why does Bunny Lewis need to keep up the pretense when he's in the guest house? The criminal's noise in Manchester, just in case they go looking around and ask any questions. Have you seen this man? Anybody who has seen Bunny rather than Bernie. The actor is called Bunny Lewis. The character. Is called Bernie Lewisham, who pretends to be a woman called Bunny Lewis. I see. Because I see it's funnier, right. that's why. After the gangsters have been seen to in that 15-minute spectacular shootout at the end. Actually, no, I think it's more like 15 seconds and they trip over some cardboard boxes. But anyway, after the gangsters have been seen to, Bunny Lewis could come out of drag, but he doesn't, does he? So No, well, he's unwinding from his act. Yeah, but he doesn't need to be in hiding anymore, does he? It gives him a chance to have everybody do cruel mocking laughter at James Beck's character. I guess it's a Scooby-Doo ending. But end on a laugh. Scooby-Doo mysteries with Bunny Lewis. Yeah, better than Scrappy-Doo, yeah. Let me at him, I'll teach him a thing or two. <laughs> Scrappy-Doo would say let me at him and Bunny Lewis would say you at your turn. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that the, uh, the Saturday Supercade slot would be quite appropriate for it. And that brings us to Our Miss Fred. Now, I want to just throw in a quick piece of trivia about Our Miss Fred, which I still find astonishing. Our Miss Fred went out at 8pm on ITV on a Tuesday evening in 1988. I watched it. That's how I've heard of this thing. Now, if you listened to Sitcom Club last week, you'll have heard us mention about how ITV in the late 1980s was chasing after the ABC1 viewers. So does this mean that Danny LaRue's Our Miss Fred is typical ABC1 fare? Our Miss Fred is interesting because it is the one where the women are treated the most fairly. It's also the most lecherous. It is the one where the lead character seems to inhabit the feminine style most completely. It's also the one where he complains the most. 
Now, on that first point, is that a balancing act? It doesn't feel like it. It feels like the tone just drifts. Again, we get to the fantasy of being allowed into a women-only place. And it's like, okay, let's get the foie out of the way. Okay, we're done. Right, let's move on with the rest of the business. Move on with the rest of the plot. A while ago, I bought a DVD of an art show called Tempo. And one of the films in it is about Danny Liru and it's him and his nightclub. And he had this thing that he wasn't a female impersonator exactly. In A Couple of Beauties, there seems to be no real differentiation between whether Bonnie Lewis is pretending to be a female comedian or everybody knows he's a female impersonator. But he just goes on and he does his act and then he comes off again. I actually did some research. Well, okay, I went on YouTube and I watched a documentary about Danny LaRue, The Unforgettable. And it's a bit where Barry Cryer said he hated the word drag. And Danny LaRue's thing was, I am a man in a dress, it's a joke. So for him, it seemed to be very important to keep letting the mask drop. And one thing you see again and again in this documentary, and one thing he says in the 60s documentary they made about him, is he will walk on, he will try and look as convincing as possible in this incredibly glamorous get-up, and he'll walk up to the microphone and go, watch your mates. And at the end of the night in his nightclub, he was a hugely successful Soho nightclub, he would come on as himself. He'd come on in a dinner suit. And even to do all the feminine stuff, he'd have to, I don't know if he shaved his eyebrows or just blanked them out somehow. To come on as himself, he had to have a fake pair of men's eyebrows made so that at the end he would look like a man. So there's some interesting divide in Danny LaRue's act, and it bleeds into this, and it seems odd. And I'm not making any pitch like he was some sort of self-loathing gay man. Did he ever come out in his lifetime? I think maybe he did right towards the end. Yeah, I think very late on. Yeah, but certainly not at any point in the peak of his popularity. But his popularity started at a time when he could have been arrested. So there are reasons. It does seem strange, but also... Giving him the benefit of the doubt, I think there must have been something in the whole drag culture that he didn't like. Like, there were parts of it he did like, or maybe the parts of it he did like were he got paid for it and he was good at it. But there's clearly some part of it he wants to distance himself from. And that makes sense to me. I mean, we're doing our whole thing about not going too much. There's bits about looking at women that way that can get annoying and joyless. I see stuff and it's meant to appeal to me as a straight guy, and sometimes it's like, God, that's just grim. I want to hazard a guess. It really is a guess. I wouldn't even say it was informed, but it's just a gut reaction from someone who wasn't there and doesn't know. So take it for what it is. I wonder if perhaps Danny LaRue's hesitancy about being too closely associated with his drag act, so to speak. Like you said there, when he started, it was at a time when you could have been arrested for homosexuality. Do you think that perhaps the decriminalization, it didn't really matter so much to themselves? Because if you were a gay man in that era, and you were sort of conditioned, you were self-aware, you've you've always got to be careful how you're seen in public and make sure you don't get the intention of the police or whatever it is, then when decriminalization comes, you can't just necessarily switch off overnight. And I've heard people say that 
for example, the police were tougher on gay men after the decriminalization. So I suppose if you've gone through maybe the 40s and the 50s and the early 60s with that mindset that you know you want to put on a sort of a veneer, you you want to give an appearance of, of being a straight man, you're not necessarily going to just stop doing that after 67. I was trying to think of a way of saying, yeah, it's not just a psychological trauma about society. Just look at, he might have had straightforward reasons, basically an angst-free version of looking at it is there's clearly some part of drag acts that he doesn't like and he's at pains to distance himself from those elements and maybe part of that is also he wants to make sure that people know what Danny LaRue looks like he doesn't want to lose himself in his characters the whole point and quite a few of his jokes are about how yeah I am pretending everybody I'm not inhabiting a role He's a weird combination, actually. You know, I said the two types of pantomime dame, the Bonnie Lewis type, just being a woman, trying to inhabit a feminine role. And then there's the not really trying, just a bloke in a dress, acting like a bloke. Danny LaRue seems to try and combine the two versions. I mean, he'll come on looking like an old-time nitrate TCM Hollywood film star. And there's a bit in this film where he impersonates Marlena Dietrich. But for him, it's important to say, I'm not, by the way. There's a bloke in here. Haha, that's the joke. So that's the angst-free way of looking. And it's probably a combination of factors. I just didn't want to talk about this and try and make out that he was a tortured soul. Crying on the inside, a sad clown. I don't want to play that joke on him. That's the stuff of BBC4 drama documentaries, isn't it? Plot is fairly simple. He's in the biz. It's during the Phony War. The British are in France and they're getting pushed back. It's pre-Dunkirk. He's working at a little end of the pier theatre. He gets his call-up papers. We don't really see what his act is in this theatre. This is a really well-made film in places. It's clearly made on a tight budget, but there's just some really elegant stuff in here. We don't have like a comedy medical. We just see he's got his papers, he gets into his car, he drives off and we cut to him in a tank in France. It's kind of like, okay, are we all on the same page? Cut. And let's make it a nice bit of associative cutting. Because he's doing a concert party, that's what's fallen to him, and he's doing female impersonation. But again, he's obviously doing the thing that he's dressed up, but he's like pushing the guys, he's giving them little slaps that are sending them flying. The Germans catch up, they take all the soldiers, prisoners of war, he's still there dressed as a woman, so he gets let free. But again, he protests. He comes up to his commanding officer and said, why can't I come with you? And it's like, no, you stay there. Keep up this disguise. And that's it. He's stuck in France, pretending to be a woman. So the Germans don't get him. And But he complains the most. He is constantly, well, when I get back into a pair of trousers, I'm never changing again. And then he ends up finding a little, is it a girl's school or some girls who've been at the school who are now in hiding? It's a finishing school, something like that. Yeah, and they're sort of part of this all-women resistance group. But right here we get to a point where we have women who have a bit more about them than the women in the other films. So we have Lally Boas as the headmistress and Frances Delator as her deputy. They seem to get more to do than any of the women in the other films. I mean, Pat Coombs just clucks and rolls her eyes at James Beck. Actually, it's worth mentioning that this film killed one of the other films. 
it's generally regarded that A Couple of Beauties, as well as being a short film, was kind of suffocated by the publicity splash around Miss Fred and not helped by Who You Are Awful. Yeah, well, it seems that 1972 was flooded with too many drag acts. And those are two guys. So he ends up working with these girls. And yeah, this is where the four moment gets a bit. Because they're schoolgirls. These are schoolgirls. We see a schoolgirl's gusset. That's what I'm trying to say. See, when you say they're schoolgirls, then, then people start thinking, oh, is it a little bit seedy and what have you? If you say they're Centrinian schoolgirls. Now, that might not be too much of a distinction from the prison of 2015, but at the same time, they're not shy retiring creatures. You know, they've all got something about them. They've all got a bit of oomph and they're all capable of looking after themselves and what have you. So it's not, there's never a suggestion that Daniel LaRue is potentially sort of preying on any of them or anything like that. But yes, I know what you mean. That scene where he's under the I'm not accusing anybody of being a foul-minded perv. It's just one of the moments that sounds worse when you describe it. But also, we have that whole segment, and then that seems to just fade away. The whole idea of him before birds all over, oh, look at all these lovely birds all around me, dissolves. That's what I mean. It felt like, right, we obviously we're going to have to put a bit of male gaze in here. Right, done. I thought it was principally so he could do that line when one of the girls says, doesn't the car need to be jacked up more? And he says, I think it's about to be. (laughs) There is an interesting little bit as well where after he's seen up this girl's skirt, he's fixing a car. It's purely incidental. He's underneath the car and he comes out from underneath and the girl is standing astride him. But he's meant to repair the car and the headmistress says, have you plumbed her secrets talking about the car? And his line is, I've plumbed all their secrets. But he delivers, he goes, I've plumbed all their secrets. That's meant to be your Randy Bloke line. And instead it's come out all camp and frilly. The gulf between the line intention and the line delivery is really interesting. I've never seen Carry On Columbus, so I can't comment firsthand as a viewer. But I did once read a review of that which said it was complaining about how the, the new intake supposedly weren't up to normal sort of carry-on standards. And this reviewer mentioned Peter Richardson delivered the line, did you give her one then? As if it was actually a serious inquiry with no innuendo attached. Also, uh, Francis de la Tour's character, Miss Lockhart, takes a bit of a shine to Fred, as he's called, and Frederica, as she's called. As I don't know, there's an interesting little bit there that she then feels okay when she finds out it's a bloke. But there's a little tension there. I'd kind of like to know about the opinions and <laughs> sexual histories of everybody involved in the making of this. <laughs> well, I'm presuming that she's sort of attracted to Frederica, but she's not sure why. And then when it turns out he's a bloke, he's like, oh, that makes all makes sense. Same sort of plot as Blackadder, Blackadder 2, and he's attracted to Bob, as he knows her. But do we have an anonymous Fred 2, where the two of them get together? Oh, I know, no, I know we don't, obviously. That could have been a sequel. Why are they bothering making Star Wars 7 when they could be making Our Miss Fred 2? Oh, the one whacking grit piece of plot convenience. It just so happens that one of the women who was at the girls' school left behind a huge trunk of fancy outfits and wigs. That was fortunate. And when they run out of those, he has to hide out at a fashion show. That is an odd scene, isn't it? This is the bit that breaks the complaining. 
constantly thinking of, oh, I'm sick of dressing up as a bird. And at one point, we haven't even brought Lance Percival's character. It turns out that he's been hidden in a barn at the girls' school. The girls know about him. He's an airman who's been lost as part of the retreat. He plays a weirdly bloodless kind of character because he clearly likes the adoration of the girls. But you'd think he'd be more lecherous. Well, he does try it on with Frederica. Yeah, but that's the thing, though. He tries it on with Frederica. I guess he's an officer and a gentleman. <laughs> uh, and there is a bit where Fred asks him, he, he for a start, the first thing he does is sort of say, look, I'm a bloke, and this is my number and rank. And he, asks, he says, give me your uniform and I can surrender the, to the Germans. For some reason, he would rather be a prisoner of war than swan around France in fancy dresses. That is how much he hates dressing up as a woman. And then he hides out at a fashion show and we have a montage of Danny LaRue in glamorous dresses and jewellery, smiling his most dazzling smile and really just having the time of his life. A kaleidoscopic array. The many faces of Danny LaRue. The many dresses of Danny LaRue. You call that. The really weird outfit in this, it wasn't part of the fashion show, it was the French maid outfit. All the other dresses are for a certain kind of old-fashioned glamour, whereas that looked like a sexy fantasy outfit. And also, he had the legs for it. How the hell do you do that? What exercises do you do to give you ladies' legs? You know, if you do exercises, you end up with legs like a rugby player. Can you not do trick photography? You know, you know how they say the camera adds ten pounds because, but it takes it off the legs and adds switch. it elsewhere. I see. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, well, yeah. So you could switch the lens, and then yeah, it's like those funny mirrors in the fairgrounds. So eventually, we settle down to just capering around Germany, pulling tricks on the Wehrmacht. Suddenly, most of the suggestion about being surrounded by a bunch of sexy schoolgirls is just like helping a bunch of girls and protecting them. And we also get a bit where Fred disguises himself in a German officer's uniform. So we do get a disguise that's not a woman. We have Alfred Marx hitting on Frederica. They're pretty good at bringing in little new plot twists. So at one point, the headmistress falls sick and he has to be the one to go and get a doctor. And then he gets found by the resistance and then he gets found by the Germans. And He's got his mission to get a doctor. and It's pretty tightly plotted. And then we get another bit where it goes off in an unexpected direction. So for plot reasons, the busload of schoolgirls have to disguise themselves as a bus full of working girls. Tap side of the nose. And you'd think that for this lecherous audience you were trying to appease earlier with the crop tops and upskirts, that would be an opportunity to dress up the young women in a, in a way that would appeal to the blokes. But that doesn't really happen. Right, okay, the person who's dressed up the most is, of course, Fred. He seems to have the most care put into his outfit. <laughs> and the rest just look like they've raided a dressing up hamper and have been at Mummy's makeup. And then we get a whole sequence of them zooming around in a little tank firing machine guns at Germans. And they are very handy with the machine gun. Yes, yes. They must have had some training. Well, it doesn't entirely break the plot. I can kind of think that Lally Boa's character might have actually given them some shooting training to defend themselves against men. Or because the reason that Fred has to keep up his pretense in front of the women characters is Lally Boas is just convinced that once a man's in the uniform, he's a monster. And she'd probably shop him to the Germans if she thought he was a uniformed man, to protect her girls. So they've thought it all through. I mean, I'm not condemning this because it's avoiding cliches. I like avoiding cliches, but I am just wondering how this was made and why this was put together this way. Still, John Rapley, eh? 
John Rapley turns up. Always a good thing. <laughs> Gerson Clover. Oh, and of course, we have an American character. Not unusual for a film like this to stick in an American character in the hopes of appealing to the American market. She gets barely anything to do. I am going to say that the actress is not American. Her Texan accent does not sound convincing to me. Sounds like she maybe watched half an episode of the Beverly Hillbillies as preparation. But it's a very good-natured film. It is, yes. And it comes across as well-made. And obviously, yeah, it's a vehicle for Daniel LaRue. But in a strange way, it doesn't go down the same route as some of these starring vehicles where it's just the individual in question parroting half of their stand-up routine or an excuse to get them on. Now, Daniel LaRue appears on the stage a few times, but it's not as if it's something where you know that they're just basically doing their act but on the big screen. Yeah, it, it stands up pretty well. I could have done without the song. Which song was that? Hitler has only got one ball. They take the words of Colonel Bogie and put a new tune. Now, I was going to ask you about that because you once sent me the original Jingle Bells and I was thinking, is this the original Hitler has only got one ball? Was no, it slightly different I don't think so. No? No. There is one bit because that song gets sung at the end and the words turn up on the screen and, of course, we have a bouncing ball for the first line. <laughs> <laughs> and then two small ones. <laughs> Next two lines, and no ball for the last. Yeah, well, okay. But you know what? I I take that back. It was worth it for that joke. But it might as well just done the Colonel Bogey theme. It just seems a bit pointless putting a new tune to that. It's a different arrangement, so she can get the Germans to sing along to it without realizing what they're doing. I think the words are the problem. You just need a very basic understanding of English to realize something bad's being said, but. <laughs> I'm glad we talked about it because I don't think it could have sustained its own podcast by itself. Is there not scope for this being a sort of triple pack network DVD release? Maybe they can chuck in that Hugh Scully documentary as well, just for the hell Oh, heck. What? Push it up to R18? (laughs) (laughs) But where are drag acts today in 2015 outside of pantomime? Do they really exist? Because I'm struggling to think of it. Okay, Okay, you've got Mrs. Brown, obviously. Apart from that, I can't really think of any that are on mainstream television or anything like that these days. Well, we've done our usual thing of drawing a bunch of lines and then not taking them anywhere. Asked a lot of questions, not come up with many answers. That's fine. But that leaves room for a sequel, you see. Got to leave room for the next set of the franchise. You don't get all the answers in the Fast and Furious films. You know, they leave some doors open. Okay, next Fast Furious franchise film. Mr. Fest and Mrs. Furious. <laughs> or Fred Furious. A couple of Furious beauties. <laughs> we will be back in two weeks with Jeff and Cakes of Proust with our first of three Christmas specials. But next week on the Sitcom Club, we're going to be looking at A Small Problem. Written by Mike Walling and Tony Milan. We're going to be tackling bigotry. Are they going to be tackling bigotry? People aren't necessarily going to pick up on the fact that they're tackling bigotry. And there's going to be a lot of defensiveness and how dare you's being thrown around. And it's intriguingly modern. It's a nice little oddity. It's a show which has been completely forgotten about. exactly the kind of thing the sitcom club is meant to do. Exactly, exactly. So that's coming up in a week's time. Then next Jaffa Cakes for Bruce in two weeks' time. In the meantime, you can hear all of the previous editions of both shows 
at sitcomclub.com and also at podnose.com where you'll find all the other podcasts within the Podnose family as well. In the meantime, you can get in touch with us at feedback at sitcomclub.com or on Twitter at the sitcom club. So in the meantime, tilt. Goodbye. This is Gary and this has been Jaffa Cakes for Proust. <laughs>